see whether or not you've got eggs. Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome back to another episode of Cult of Personality. I'm your host, Luke, and join with me today, as always, is Matt. Matt, how are you doing? How am I doing? Um, you know, I kind of feel, I kind of feel like uh, an Ariel Pink song. Which one? How I feel today. Which one? Yeah. Uh, lipstick. Nice. Very impressive. <laughs> you know, that's a uh, cop homework for today if you guys haven't uh, heard any of his stuff before. Just ignore any... Don't look into his personal life. Just listen to the music, and that's what's important. Yeah, Pom Pom is, is one of my favorite pop albums, for sure. It's so good, you know? Like, it. I guess it's like the chill wave. I guess it's like called chilled wave, or whatever this 80s nostalgia stuff is. But for me, it's like the peak of that. Um, because the best way to do that kind of thing is you make it sound like that, but then you, the content itself is a little perverted because you don't want to just do cheap imitations. So mm-hmm. He gives a kind of surrealistic bent to it that makes it interesting. Like Lipstick, the lyrics are great. It's just, I mean, there have been serial killer songs before. Uh, Maxwell Silverhammer. Maxwell Silverhammer, boom. Mac the Knife, boom. <laughs> Mac tonight, boom. Just they keep pumping them out. Uh, I don't know what the fixation is, but uh, it's, it's all right with me. John Mouse is like that too, where he's but he's doing the lo-fi thing. Uh, but then he also has songs with sillier premises. I mean, like rights for gays. That's just <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. Oh yeah. Rights for gays. Oh yeah. Yeah, he's good. They're pretty similar, but I haven't actually listened to that much John Mouse, unfortunately. I really should get on that, but to my understanding, like, his is a little bit more dour. Like, it's a little mm-hmm. bit... It's not as poppy, I guess. Yeah. It's, like, even chiller wave. Was it him or Ariel Pink that, like, played with Animal Collective for a bit? What happened was, they didn't... Ariel Pink didn't actually play with Animal Collective per se, but Animal Collective had a label in, like, I think they started in the early 2000s. And I think they were publishing their own stuff on there called Paw Tracks. Mm. And then Ariel Pink, I think, got his, like, major quote-unquote label debut on Paw Tracks. So to that extent, Animal Collective kind of helped him on the up-and-up. But yeah, I don't think he ever actually, like, played with them. Okay. But but he was affiliated with them. So that's hmm. pretty cool. Well, we're not talking about Ariel Pink today. Why not? Well, that's a different show that we do. Okay, okay. Today, we're talking about Scanners. 1981 film by Mr. Cronenberg, Canadian director. Shout out. One of the few. And um, I remember this movie being a bit better than what it is. I don't know if you feel the same way. Um, the movie is kind of just a really boring drama. Uh, it's kind of like The Blob. Not the good one, but the boring one. Where 
not a whole lot happens. They try to uh, throw in some twists and turns here to keep you guessing, but then the twists and turns aren't that um, titillating. They're not that exciting. Um, and the lead star kind of just does a really shitty Luke Skywalker impression the whole movie. Uh, what did you think about the movie? What did I think? Honestly, I didn't think much of it. Mm -hmm. uh, you you kind of hit all the points there. This movie kind of disappointed me. I'm I'm glad that you came out and said that it wasn't as good as you remember because I, I was almost worried we were going to have to fight on this <laughs> one because like, this movie disappointed the hell out of me. Yeah. I mean, my only experience I had that I have with Cronenberg is The Fly. Mm -hmm. And I saw that like about a year ago. I thought it was great. Um, I mean, even effects aside, um, it, it was so like, it was so emotionally potent. I mean, the ending, it, it's just, it, it's like actually, that's like great horror. And it's got a campy premise. It, it hits all the notes for me. Mm -hmm. Like when I saw that movie, and I hear people talking about Cronenberg. I was like, okay, I understand his style now. Or I thought I did. And then this, and then I watched this movie and like, oh, man, it's so dry. Oh, yeah. So dry. Yep. Like, that was, that was like uh, the thing, you know, sometimes you start watching a movie and, you know, 20 minutes in, you're not like into it yet. Right. And you're thinking, well, I'm going to give it time. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's going to pick up especially if it's a film that's been critically acclaimed. But then about the hour mark in this movie, I was like, so this is the movie. <laughs> so that's it. This is what we're working with. Uh, it, it seems like a good uh, art school project. Yeah. Like, okay, here's the, here's the first thing that bothered me about this movie. Okay. Why does the cast look so bored? <laughs> through the whole goddamn thing okay <laughs> the script itself it's like it's whatever it's okay? so boring we it... should give a rundown of the plot yeah okay? so what happens is there's um it's 1980 and there's this there's these people running around called scanners and they're telepaths basically and sometimes they can blow people's head up um and what we have here is there's this company called Consec. They're like this private, like, uh, company. They, exactly. There's some just nefarious conglomerate. But they're like the good guys in this. And they're trying to find this one guy named Daryl Revick. Because he's like the super crazy scanner. And what he's doing is he's going to all 247 known scanners and saying, Hey, um, you should join me or die. <laughs> And then one of those two things happen. So they want to catch this guy. So they decide that they're going to pick up um, a guy who eats hot dogs <laughs> off food trays uh, that he finds in the mall. And they're going to let um, him be the savior of humanity. His name's Cameron Vale. Uh, and basically the rest of the movie is just kind of like a cat and mouse where... Um, Revik's on the tail and they're trying to find out more about him. And they're trying to get to him first. And that's the gist of it, really. Uh, the big... Oh, I should mention that um, there's this guy named Dr. Ruth. He's, like, this sort of, like... Uh, <laughs> he kind of remind me of Orson Welles in that one um, <laughs> commercial where he's drunk <laughs> as fuck. 
He doesn't act drunk as fuck in this, but he's got the same look. He's just like the pensive kind of avuncular uh, scientist who, who, who takes in Cameron and he's like, I'm going to teach you how to be a good scanner. Dr. Loomis. He's a Dr. Loomis type, exactly. And that's the gist of the movie. And then they just run around and a lot of people die. And there's, there's this explosive ending, but we'll get to that later. Yeah, I was looking through the credits. There weren't too many names I recognized, but there was one, well, two, Michael Ironside and Howard Shore, who did the soundtrack for this movie. And the person who did the Lord of the Rings movie soundtrack, in this movie he does um, like a really crappy Plantasia knockoff. If you've ever listened to Mort Garson's Plantasia it, that's kind of the soundtrack for this movie is just kind of crappy ambient music if you've heard a lot of like synthetic ambient music you'll watch this movie and be kind of let down it's it's not it's 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 kind of like a more modern horror movies using the the violin going to build um to build some tension it, it's it was a huge letdown I completely agree. Like the score itself, I I don't think it's good. Like sometimes you listen, some they'll have these scenes scored by you know these synths. I mean, like we've seen this so many times. Like in basically like every eighties or seventies cult movie that we yep. reviews, like it's just synth. They uh, live. I mean, I like synth. Yeah, they lives a good example though. I like synths, but in this, like, you're listening, like, there was one scene where, and I can't pinpoint exactly, but it's just Cameron talking to somebody on the phone, I think, and then there's a synth score over it, and I was like, this doesn't sound good. Like, they're just, <laughs> it's, it, you're right, it, it doesn't go for, like, anything melodic, which is fine. It's, like, this ambient stuff, but, like, it sounds like you feel the discord. Like, it's just, like, they're just pounding away at the synth for no reason like in in terms of sound i like the thing that they do and it's very simple but it's effective in which when two scanners have a sort of telepathic battle or or when one is attempting to sort of kill somebody else um they'll just have this high-pitched sort of squeal Mm -hmm. and then of course as as the tension gets further or as the victim gets more and more deranged it goes higher and higher higher the best example of this is in the famous scene which honestly most people our age have probably seen a gif or a clip from yep not even knowing it was from this movie which is the infamous head explosion scene Mm -hmm. the context of which is that it's a consec employee who is the scanner and he's the last one he's the last one he, he was their spokesperson. And he's like, I need a volunteer. I'm going to scan your brain. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. And then this guy comes up, volunteers. And he starts scanning. And then he starts fidgeting. And he, he starts looking nervous. And everyone's wondering what's going on. And then, boom, his head explodes. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, a great, it's a great scene, the head explosion scene. Because it looks good, number one. And, I mean, I'll talk about the effects later, but that is a good example of when they use that little pitch squeal. Mm Because it works. It's effective. It builds tension. It's It's a very simple technique, but, you know, sometimes you don't have to reinvent the wheel. 
but overall yeah like musically this movie is it's a, it's a total mess the, the music was a miss i i think the writing was a bit of a miss there was one part in the movie particularly where they just did this huge hand wave and it was so obvious it was like a slap in the face because i was sitting there sort of bored watching the movie and then it hit me with that i it was like a, a shot of cocaine. I was, my eyes were wide and I was, holy shit. Um, Dr. Root is talking to Cameron about uh, Daryl, Michael Ironside, crazy guy. Um, and he says, somehow he got the list of all of the scanners ever born. And like, really? That like, how, okay. You need to explain that one. How would he have that list? It It's revealed later in the movie that he owns the company that Dr. Ruth started um, to produce ephemeral, which is this drug when... Or it was like... um, It was some um, experimental drug for... I think it was like a painkiller or something. But when given to pregnant women it made their children psychic um and then michael ironside gets a company and then i was thinking okay well maybe he would have the list somehow of every woman who ever bought of every person who ever bought ephemeral i don't think it would say on their receipt they were pregnant or not uh or female so that really uh that that doesn't work for me that that kind of was a plot hole for me i'm not gonna lie you know what i didn't even notice that, but you're right um <laughs> he, he just gets it and then it's like okay and then how did they nail it down i don't know <laughs> who knows yeah that that was one part of the script where i i can't excuse it I, I try to be very lenient with plot holes, like a famous example. Uh, why why didn't they just fly to Mordor? Okay, well, that wouldn't be interesting. But this, like, I know they have to get the story moving, but they're doing it. I, it, it totally shatters my suspension of disbelief when it's it's just that blatant. Well, you know, and the thing is, like, I, there's script issues otherwise. Like, first of all, I think the dialogue is a little hokey. Mm-hmm. Um, I maybe that's just down to the delivery, okay? And as I mentioned before, the cast in this movie, they all look bored out of their fucking minds. Except and for Michael they, Ironside. Except for Michael. Okay, so th- there's five main characters here, and there's mm-hmm. some tertiary characters and stuff. Um, but these are the five we work with, okay? Stephen Lack plays Cameron Vale. This is a one out of five bag. Okay? <laughs> so bad. It's... <laughs> There's one point in the movie where he's with... Okay, so he, he finds this other scanner mm-hmm. named Kim Obris, who's like... Um, they're like a little rebel group. They oppose Re- Revik, okay? Daryl. Yeah, Daryl Revik. Yeah. And there's, one guy, and there's one point in the film later on when she says something to the effect of, um, you're not even human, or you don't even <laughs> act human. I wrote that down, and too. That, that had to be a fourth wall break. And I thought that was going to allude to something later where they're like, he's actually a robot. And that <laughs> explains why he doesn't emote properly or at all. 
no, it's not. It's just he's a, just a terrible. This is just a terrible performance. I mean, he's the main character, and it sucks. Like, <laughs> if your protagonist is gonna be unengaging, like, guess what? The most of your story is gonna be unengaging too. Okay, yep. so terrible performance. Jennifer O'Neill is 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 marginally better as Kim Obrist, but even then, she's pretty flat. She's just basically in terror for most of the movie. Not a lot of range there. I actually do like Patrick McGowan as Dr. Paul Ruth, as I said. Yep. He plays like a very archetypal uh, fatherly scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, but honestly, like he had the most convincing of all the performances. Uh, it's a shame he wasn't present in the film more. Uh, Lawrence Dane is okay as Keller, um, who is basically this informant for Revic that is the right-hand man of Dr. Paul Ruth at Consec, so he's just undermining him at every turn secretly. And I do like Ironside as Revic. There's one clip in particular when they show archive footage from when he was young that took place like 15 years prior. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a classic sort of... Uh, I'm patience. crazy. It, yeah, it's a very I'm cuckoo crazy moment. Look at me, I'd drill the hole in my head. La la. And then he smashes a glass. And then Eve, the doctor's even coming. He's like, don't touch me. Get off me. It's classic. Uh, he plays like a. He doesn't quite play like a mustache twirling vi- villain. Rebecca's presence. And it's a damn shame we don't see him more because he's present in like the first act of the film. And then second act, he's gone. He's just yeah. not even there except for a couple of meetings or secret rendezvous with keller and then he's there at the very end for the sort of explosive ending the story for the most part is not that engaging because ah there's this like indefinable quality that separates the plot of a movie from a movie like this where events just happen in sequence and they feel unconnected yeah and they don't really matter to you it's like basically they go somewhere to find something out. Revic sends some assassins. Shooting, shooting, shooting. <laughs> All right, let's go to the next thing. Yeah, Revic's guys show up. Shooting, shooting, shooting. It's just repetitious. Exactly. Like, it's just, it's the same thing. And there isn't a lot of variety there. I mean, the story here, like, the premise itself is interesting that you have, like, these people that are telepathic. I mean, now we've seen that a million bajillion times. Mm -hmm. But I imagine, like, 40 years ago, that was somewhat novel. Um, And I mean, they they don't really do anything that interesting with it because, as I said, it just becomes a kind of cat and mouse plot. But it's, like, the worst episode of Tom and Jerry you've (laughs) ever seen. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, they had, they had, um, like, telekinesis horror before. I mean, there was Carrie, so I'm sure that influenced mm-hmm. this movie. Um, but it is, it, it's so dry. And even when they try to do twists, it's, they're just, they spend the movie so much time doing nothing that you do these twists. I don't care about the characters. I don't care about the twist. I'm not emotionally invested. You have to, if you, if you're writing a drama, you have to write well thought out, deep characters. Um, our main guy, seriously, I said at the beginning of the episode, but this is what I imagine um, how people see, how people saw Mark Hamill's performance in Star Wars. Like the people who hate his performance that's how i see um 
Cameron or uh, Steven's performance as Cameron. It's so it's so bland. There's a there's a moment where he's deep in thought, and someone asks uh, him a question or something, and it breaks his concentration. He, he's like power. Oh, oh yes, he does. It's so dry. It's like a stale crouton. There isn't an atom of H two O left in that thing. He's and he's just wide eyed, and I, I don't even know anything about him other than his name. Uh, I I can't tell you what his future goals are. Can't tell you anything about him. But I have to care that R- Daryl is secretly his brother. Whoa, my hey, mind is blown. Okay, you know what? Uh, I mean, we might as well get to that. Sure. Um, so this is uh, this is, and this is a highlight of the film. Besides the effects, um, which I think are pretty good for the most part, mm-hmm. um, like the head exploder scene. There's a couple of other instances where they use some pyrotechnics to good effect. So it, it, in in the technical regard, it's a good-looking film. Although I'll say that Cronenberg really is not doing any kind of inspired direction here. And I think his hand at the camera is part of the reason why this movie is so flat. Um, he doesn't really do anything interesting compositionally or anything like that. It's it's a pretty matter-of-fact film. and. It, ha- it the whole time it just has like this color palette of like a a super cloudy day <laughs> i don't know when they're it's probably filming in in january in canada so i can't blame them too much for that but like christ doesn't add any color to this kind of gray plot already um no but it, the ending is where like they put all their eggs in the basket i guess because you know, they, they're finding stuff out. They find out eventually that, okay, um, Revic is distributing um, ephemeral under using a concept computer program called Ripe. Um, Can I interrupt you for one he, second? Yeah, sure. I'm so sorry, but the scene where he linked with the computer was so dumb. It makes no sense. It makes, it makes no, sense. no sense. That would work in like Evangelion, because yeah. like the Magi system has a, like souls basically. Th- this mm. makes no sense. Nineteen eighty computers were not. They did not have nervous systems, as the <laughs> computer guy said. Yeah, uh, that that is kind of silly because what happens is Ruth just says, "Oh well." I don't have access to the concept computers. And then Vale's like, neither do I. And he's like, but don't you? And I was like, oh, I'm pretty sure he doesn't. Uh, but yeah, then he says the computer is like a nervous system. So he, uh, this dude, this is like borderline insulting intelligence. This dude goes to a phone booth, punches in some code on the phone and starts telepathically hacking their system. Like, okay. You know, suspension to disbelief stretched thin. Oh, that was so bad. That was so crappy. <laughs> it's silly. It comes off so silly. It's just yeah. such a leap. Like, it just doesn't work in the context of the film. Okay, fine. Uh, he hacks the computers. Then he blows. Then they're like, oh, he's taking all that info. Then they're like, oh, blow it up and it'll kill him too. <laughs> okay, so take that in stride as well. Um <laughs> And then he blow, he's too powerful, so he blows it up, and then uh, the scientists and um, Keller die. 
and then uh, the phone is melting for no reason. What would that blow up in a computer? The circuit, the motherboard, <laughs> the, the circuit board. The mainframe. The mainframe, the, the, <laughs> uh, the circuits, the, the D drive, the, the Google Chrome, everything would blow up. It would be a big explosion. All, everybody at home, by the way, your computers are time bombs just waiting to go off. I, I love this set like... they're into because it's just like the computer room, which we've seen in <laughs> Westworld or THX. <laughs> There's just like tape recorders in the back running. I think they had one of those in uh, Captain America Civil War too. just tapes running in the background and a couple of guys in lab coats for some reason sitting at computers. What mm-hmm, the fuck are they yeah. doing? um they're just you know typing um calculating you know just all that good stuff you're right though now that i think of it it's like identical i guess i'll take it on good faith i guess in the 70s 80s computer rooms looked like this okay only guys with lab coats and and you know like serial killer glasses are allowed to operate the computers and you know it is what it is but whatever Um, so the, the ending, what happens is that they find out that, uh, spoilers by the way, but who cares? Um, they find out, oh, by the way, Keller kills Ruth earlier because he's the mole and he, and then Revic tells him, kill him if he knows too much. So, so Dr. Ruth dies. Uh, it sucks. Okay. So what they find out is they hack the system. They find out that this ephemeral um is being distributed and that if it get if it's given to pregnant women it makes their babies become scanners okay then revit comes and he abducts them and he takes them away okay then this is the big ending revit okay and you know what I, I i like this ending better than most of the film yeah because it's a it's at the very least it's eventful okay so Revic says, you know, he says, Vale, wake up. And he says, Vale, Dr. Ruth was your dad. And he was my dad, too. And I'm your brother. <laughs> Boom. Big reveal. Okay. You know, it is what it is. Um, it was, at least <laughs> when you're watching the movie, something that, like that will perk you up a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're sitting there in a, in a stupor and, oh, okay. Now what? <laughs> and so he says, yeah, he found, he, Dr. Ruth made this drug. He found out that it makes scanners after he made it. He gave it to his wife. His wife had two kids. The two kids are Vale and Revik, so they're brothers, okay? Um, and Revik says, join me. Let's rule the world. We'll be <laughs> the greatest empire you've ever seen. It's kind of, You know, this is kind of like a Star Wars ending, actually. Uh, and then Vale's like, no, I won't do it. <laughs> And then they have a telepathic battle. I'm gonna suck your brain dry. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of that's kind of funny, actually. They have a telepathic battle that goes on about two, three minutes too long, uh, because they're just well looking at each other and then shaking a bit. And then there's some cool effects where their veins start popping out and they start skin melts. Skin is melting. They're ripping out pieces of their flesh, and then. Veil catches on fire, and then Revit's eyes turn white, which is the guy you see on the poster. And then Kim, who's in the other room unconscious, comes in. She finds Veil's charred body. She's like, ah, oh, damn. <laughs> and then Revit's like, actually, 
I'm here. And it's Vale's voice and his green eyes with terrible contacts. And he says, <laughs> we've won. So it was presumably Vale. They won what, the though? Uh, I don't know. It's a cool ending line. <laughs> Just roll with it, man. Um, that scene was kind of cool. Like, kind of. As I said, the the battle goes on too long, but it, it's a literally explosive ending. You get a little fire, you get some cool effects work, and like I said, the effects in this are, are pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, the ending, like thematically or whatever, with the with that ending, as you say, with that weave one, doesn't really make sense. But whatever, it is what it is. Um, so I'll give the ending a little bit of a plus. You get one bag for that. The ending also gets another plus because um, they really go full circle with the whole Star Wars thing when uh, they're talking about Dr. Ruth and Cameron says, Dr. Ruth is a great man. Almost in the exact same delivery when Luke Skywalker said to Han Solo, um, he's a great man talking about old Ben. So uh, plus one bag, plus two bags for that one. (laughs) Plus two bags? Damn. Okay. Yeah, you know, the Star Wars inspiration, hey, get on you, Kona Break. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you probably couldn't escape it at the time, four years out there at least. But, no, wait a second. This would have been a year after Empire. Sorry. would have been a year after Empire. I have a question um, for but, you. Yeah, yeah. Was, because I still don't actually know, was Kim a scanner or not? <laughs> Kim was a scanner. Um, there's <laughs> There's that one scene, remember, when... Keller's interrogating her. Yeah. And Ruth says, oh, I actually... She says to Cameron privately, oh, I didn't actually give you guys ephemeral in case you guys need to get yourselves out of a sticky situation. Yeah. Here. And then she possesses him to, like, fall on the ground and drop his gun. That's, like, the, I think the only time she demonstrates, like, noticeable telepathic power. Oh, there's also the time when, when they're escaping the facility... And a kind of cool scene, and a scene I've seen many times before. And, you know, the more we watch these kind of movies, I, I got to, like, graph out, like, the kind of cliches that we see. Mm-hmm. And in this one, you get this cliche. It's not a big cliche, but if you've, if you've seen enough movies and read enough comics, you know it, which is the telepaths, uh, they, mind, they mind fuck you, and then they just leave you a, a crying, sobbing mess. Mm-hmm. Because Kim mindfucks this guard, and then he sees his mom, and he's like, Mommy, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have let you down. Was that her, though? That was her. Or that is supposed to be her. Yeah, because I, I know Cameron was there, but he had his own guard to take care of. So presumably he was doing whatever to him, making him see uh, nightmare, 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 nightmare. And Kim was doing her own thing. She is a scanner, because he when he first meets Kim, what happens is... Uh, and this is uh, there's actually a good character in this, or like a, a semi interesting side character. It's a guy named Benjamin Pierce. He's a scanner who does crazy art. I and love some the, of the art. art that they, they is quite cool actually. Um, and they present him as like this tortured genius because he was a because he's a scanner and he tried to kill his whole family when he was ten, and they decided that the best way after spending time in an insane asylum uh, of rehabilitating him was just to let him do his art. So he's living a semi peaceful life in his gallery. He's kind of cuckoo crazy. He's a little centric. He's a fun character. But unfortunately, Revik sends the fun police down to kill him <laughs> so you don't get him for the rest of the movie. Um, and then Benjamin Pierce says, go find Kim. Kim Obris is the key because she's like the leader of the rebel scanners. I think she's just the leader, but she isn't a scanner. 
I'm I'm like I'm pretty sure she's a scanner, because well, what about that scene when she's with Keller? How do you explain that? That that was Cameron. From afar. Sure. Why not? I mean, uh, Daryl um, controlled his henchmen from afar. Folks, you watch the movie and you decide whether or not Kim is a scanner. Why? Why would the guy with connections to Daryl think that she isn't a scanner? Because she doesn't know him. Yeah, but Daryl has a list of every scanner ever born. Right. So he knows. So he would know that she's a scanner. Yeah, but but Keller said, "Like I know, I know what you truly are. Like you're not a scanner, or yada yada yada." Well, okay, well, what happens is that they, they're like, Cameron's like, oh, I have an informant from, um, from Revic. Take me in and take my informant in and interrogate her. But she's not actually an informant, so that was just him bullshitting. Um, oh, tra- okay. Yeah. and then I think she's just a very weak scanner then. Maybe, yeah. Maybe she's, she's not like they stayed in the movie that revic and cameron are like they're like the omega level scanners yeah they're the oldest ones because they were the first ones yeah so they're like the super super powerful ones <laughs> that can blow up people's heads and light people on fire and other cool things but uh but yeah then there's also kim there whatever kim looks older than michael ironside you're right um i i don't know it's her hair maybe um, i looked she's only 30 she's only 32 in the movie it's her hair because she has like gray hair <laughs> but she looks young like facially but i mean you know when you're when you got like a silver mane like that it's it's always gonna make you look older but yeah you're right um she's not a love interest or anything if you guys are trying to get a romantic angle i mean how could you love someone like cameron vale i mean he's just a blank slate of <laughs> being he's <laughs> You know, he he's really he's really just a meat sack. <laughs> like he, I can't even call him a person cuz he's got no dimension to him. Maybe that's what homeless people are like. I don't know. <laughs> I I've talked to some homeless people downtown though and they were way more interesting than this guy. They say stankaroonie. Yeah, they come up and they say stankaroonie and they have a, and they smile <laughs> at least a little bit. Like jeez. Would have killed this guy to, you know, show a couple of teeth once in a while christ i just got this blank i i just got so tired watching his blank eyed stare (laughs) like i don't mean to be a dick but like do you sometimes wonder like how these people get cast yes yes like like the casting director should be fired for this for this million dollar production in which they cast like i i I like to think i could do a better job than this guy i could i like to think i could emote he's so bad he's so bad maybe like i always think that they're seeing something that i'm not and like maybe he's just so traumatized that he is just a blank slate like something like that like that's their that's their motive but it it doesn't work in the end or maybe it would work more if you showed me more of his past if he talked more about his mental anguish but without that then he's just um he's just a meat sack like you said well if if they see it but you don't 
they fucked up because we're the audience and yeah. we are the ones that matter. We don't give a damn what the casting director saw in this guy or whatever sob story he gave um, to get this part. But like, he just doesn't do it for me. Like this movie, honestly, significantly could have been improved with a better protagonist or at least a relatable one. But my God, man, my God. Make Michael just Ironside the protagonist. They should have made him the protagonist. Ironside, you know, it's it, it's like I he doesn't have like an extremely like he doesn't have a groundbreaking performance here but like I said he has gravity when he's on screen he feels menacing and I don't know like he I guess he's he's known for kind of playing like a villain mm-hmm. type but he does it well uh he's way more interesting than his brother <laughs> they don't even look alike by the way I mean, that's you know I shouldn't I, it's not a problem, but, like, there, when the scene when he's like, I'm your brother, and it cuts from his face to Vale's, I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> like, you know, try a little bit better. Like, Oh, I hate I when know. movies do that. Like, Luke like, and Leia, to... they don't even look that similar. They don't, yeah. It, like, I get, like, you can't cast, like, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're casting for those parts separately is the thing, right? So... You're going to have to coordinate. Okay, I guess it doesn't work, but I don't know. I mean, even Luke and Leia look more alike than than these guys. Like, Jesus. Or uh, when they, they do, like, a younger version of a character and then the older version, it's like, nah, not really. <laughs> I don't think so, pal. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you something. Would you rather have the thing where they cast a younger person that doesn't look that similar or where they put an older actor in like a crappy wig <laughs> and a little makeup and say, this is teenage. This is the teenage version. The first yeah. one, the first one, the first one. Yeah, I agree. Cause it really doesn't work. Um, an example that I always think of is the show Dexter. They would take 40 year old. Um, <laughs> they would take, 40-year-old Michael C. Hall and give him the worst wig ever. That's it. And they said this was 17-year-old Dexter. <laughs> and let me tell you, it didn't really work that well. And thankfully, those flashback scenes are quite brief. Should have done, like, Evan Peters or something. Something. Like, man, I don't know. Um, look, I, that's a challenge. You know, props to all the casting directors working through these hurdles. But uh, y- you could do a better job. An example I saw recently of that was Shazam. Um, his mom, uh, in the first scene we see her, they're like, she's 16, and she looks uh, 30 or 40 years old, <laughs> and they just gave her dirty blonde hair and kind of a young yeah. top, and that was it. It's like, you know, it's attention to detail like that that takes someone in or out of a movie, you know? Even if yeah. it's just for a second... You just don't want, as little as you can, you just want to, you don't want to break that level of immersion. Yeah, got to keep them in. Simple stuff like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's something we take in stride, I don't know. Uh, there's like an, there's a weird age casting problem with Hollywood too, where, you know, like the, the like what well, we talked about it last week with Starship Troopers, where like these are supposed to be high schoolers. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Casting directors should be forced to go to a high school <laughs> and then look around for a one day. And then I guarantee you they'll start casting minimum five years, five years younger on average. Because teenagers, like, half of them in grade 12 are still underdeveloped. Yep. Okay? 
or in the transitional stage. Wake up. <laughs> Give your head a shake. God. One last thing. It was just another immersion-breaking moment. Cameron's talking with Dr. Ruth. At the beginning of the movie, we see him as just a as a, a homeless man. He goes to a, a mall, goes to the food court, steals some hot dogs, unfinished hot dogs, and then two ladies who are maybe 10 feet away from him just start talking shit about him out loud. They're like, oh, he's disgusting. <laughs> Uh, I think he's looking at us while he's looking straight at them from 10 feet away. Uh, he's talking with Dr. Ruth about that. And then Dr. Ruth says, or Cameron says, it wasn't the two ladies talking with their mouth, but with their mind that set him off. Because he gives the one lady a seizure. And then Dr. Ruth says, yeah, like they weren't, they weren't talking. But in this scene, they were talking and their mouths were moving. And then later... When uh, Cameron gets caught by, by Oscorp, um, there, uh, Doctor Ruth just brings in like forty people, and he he just hears all of their thoughts, and their mouth isn't moving, and it drives him insane. So that that part made made no sense. Doctor Ruth was like, "Yeah, they weren't talking, but they were. Their mouths were moving, and they were talking right at him. It 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 that seemed like a script error, or maybe they like." reshot that or something i'm not sure you could you could cope and in a stretch say well he was perceiving it as them talking to him because <laughs> well he can't differentiate between you know verbal talking maybe and, and telepathy that's a total cope though it's just yeah just a script fuck up um that scene that you're right is also totally comical because these ladies I uh, see a homeless guy eat a hot dog off the tray, and they're like, oh, look at this fucking disgusting bum, super <laughs> loudly. Uh, look, I'm sure there's people like that in real life, but I think most people would just give a couple of sideway glances and then try to ignore them. Yeah, I've never uh, talked shit about a homeless person <laughs> uh, in private <laughs> or to their face. Not even when they come up to us when we're dining and say, Stankaroonie! <laughs> you know... Even then, we keep our heads on. So these ladies, they're out of pocket, for sure. You want to go to Bags, Matthew? Uh, I think so. I got nothing else to say about the film. Um, Trivia-wise, a cool cool note uh, for the those who want to know. The head explosion scene, they, of course, had a plaster skull, and they filled it with quote latex scraps some wax bits and bobs stringy stuff and leftover burgers um they tried a bunch of different techniques they didn't get it to work so they said everybody go into the car or into the trucks that they had on set close all the doors and windows and then the effects supervisor just blew his head off with a shotgun uh looks like that's the way to go because it's damn effective and it looks pretty good uh, that's all the trivia I got for you. Oh, and the other thing is that the ephemeral thing is a, a reference to a real-life scandal that happened in Canada and Western Europe uh, during the late 50s and early 60s. What happened was there was this medicine given out called thalidomide um, for pregnant women, and it was for morning sickness. Um, huge scandal because that will mutate the fuck out of your baby. Um, they will come out deformed, and a lot of them did, more than 10,000. Really? Um, yep. It's quote-unquote the biggest man-made medical disaster ever. 
What was it called? Yeah. Um, thalidomide uh, is what is what the drug was called. Huh. Um, it was a, it was started by this German pharmaceutical company. They aggressively marketed it, and then like you know, five years after introduction, they were like, "Wow, um, there's something going on here." Uh, yeah, and there's a there's like a documentary about it. There's a bunch of stuff about it. The big thing is that you get this thing called focomelia, um, where your arms and legs are just like stumps. Uh, so yeah, that was kind of a bra moment, <laughs> as the kids say. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so that was a reference to that, and it, it that's notable. That's semi notable because it's a Canadian film, and this actually the drug was not distributed in the U.S. Oh, it's a, it was a distinctly Canadian and European phenomenon. So I don't know if Cronenberg had a go us. I'm sure he was a lot. Yeah. Uh, hey, we'll take that out. Okay, <laughs> we got a couple more W's that the U.S. you can you can stay mad at, but uh, okay, I'll take that one for sure. <laughs> Did you see by chance who made the sculpt uh, sculptures for the movie? I don't. Uh, that'd be interesting. I don't know who who would have made them. Maybe the super effect. Maybe the guy who who pulled the trigger on the shotgun there, the special effects guy. But uh, I don't have any trivia about it. I'll take a quick look to see if there's anything about it. Because my favorite set in the whole movie, because there are very few of them, is the one where they're in the artist's uh, house. This little, this big uh, studio, and there's just a giant sculpted head, and you can like go inside the neck, and there's like couches and possibly more in there. We don't see it, and yeah, it's my favorite set in the whole movie. I I thought it was pretty impressive. Let's see. Uh, uh, I don't see much about. It. I'm on the IMDb trivia page. I control left art. Not much comes up. Uh, sculpture, no. Uh, gallery, I don't know. Uh, hmm. I don't know if there's anything about it. You know what? If there, if I find something later, I'll post it or I'll recommend to our new social media manager <laughs> that she, that she post it or include it uh, in the description. But uh, nothing much there. I'll give one more bonus piece of trivia. And, you know, I'll cut David Cronenberg some slack because apparently this was the most frustrating film he ever made. They rushed it through production because they wanted to capitalize on tax write-offs that were happening at the time <laughs> through the Canadian government for media. And because of that, supposedly, Cronenberg uh, was writing scenes the morning of. Mm. So, okay. There's that. You know. They weren't talking with their mouths. Okay. Yeah, so they didn't they didn't have time to revise. They had to write it and shoot it. Okay, I mean, still doesn't make for a great picture, unfortunately. <laughs> How many bags you feeling? This one, uh, disappointing for sure. Uh, tolerable, but really pushing its limits. I'm gonna give it two out of five bags. I'll match you. Four out of ten. It is. Uh really boring it gets two bags for the star wars reference and two more bags for the uh the effects that's how i rate movies that's all it takes and nothing else goes behind it the this is the part where we talk about the cult appeal i guess um 
I feel like people will come back and maybe like this movie because it has Cronenberg's name attached yeah. and because of the head explode scene and yeah. because it has a general science fiction presence. I This movie is genuinely a miss. I can't recommend it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's notable enough to even warrant like just a cursory watch just to see what it's all about. It's pretty dull, and I don't think it does anything too inventive. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> It it also has that thing of secret government organization plan to destroy the world. Like, it has big ideas. It doesn't do a lot with them, but I guess people still kind of like those big ideas, and I guess it's exciting to see a couple telekinetic fights here and there, but... Yeah, it it doesn't have who who's gonna quote a line from this movie other than I'm gonna suck your brain dry. Um, there isn't. I don't. I don't fully get the cult appeal here. Uh, I can't see like you and the boys getting together on a Friday night, and you put on this movie and you're everyone's having a good time. That that this movie seems more like. Um, do you want to see what else is on? The sort of vibe. <laughs> Really, this is like a cable TV watch when you're just, it's Sunday afternoon, your chores are done, you got nothing to do, and this pops up on like sci-fi or whatever, and you watch it, and you're not worse for wear, but uh, you really start to think about picking up a new hobby <laughs> when you're done. So that's, uh, that's all about all I can say for scanners. Do you have a comic book that you wanted to uh, showcase? No comic book today well you know what i'll i'll give a little um for those of you who are interested in the sort of older maybe horror oriented like exploitation style comic give a look to ec comics this was the comics that were published um before frederick wordham published his book called seduction of the innocent and just grabbed the industry by the balls and squeezed um (laughs) until you know to this day it's not fertile enough to have anything besides superhero comics really (laughs) push buttons or make sales that's unfortunate um but they just had a lot of they just put up many titles they would have just a war series a horror series uh a series called like psychoanalysis psychoanalysis a series about romance Uh, they would just put out a lot of titles now Granted, originally they're in black and white. There's new recolors that'll probably make it a little more palatable for most people because I imagine black and white is already a hard sell. They're also quite wordy. Um, They kind of differentiate from regular comics in that they tend to have just a big block of narration before accompanying each panel rather than have everything speech bubbled as you'll see in a modern comic. Mm. Um, but I rec- recommend checking it out. Some of the war stories are cool. The horror stuff was uh, boundary pushing at the time. Um, incredibly influential. I myself just ordered um, the new collection that they have for the MD series, which is just a bunch of medical stories they have. This is the kind of thing or the kind of diversity that I wish they had nowadays in comic books. And they do to a degree, but... In the mainstream or whatever is hitting, you know, the shelves at the comic book store that people are seeing when they walk in, it, for the most part, is Marvel and DC and maybe a little bit of Image. But uh, EC was a nice change of pace for the time. And, uh, I mean, 
the contributions that they had to the medium were uh, they can't be overstated. Hmm. So there's my uh, half-assed comic book pick of the week. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Oh, movie for next week. Do you uh, do you have one? <laughs> I do, I do, I do. Um, I, we're going to switch it up a bit. Um, we gave you guys a bonus sci-fi pick here with Scanners. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to really pivot here and give... Uh, you know, fans of other genres, something to chew on. We're looking at a 1980-something film, 89. It's a black comedy teen film. I've heard good things about it, and I'm kind of excited. Uh, it's called Heathers, starring Winona Ryder and Christian Slater. Nice. For those who don't know, the film portrays four teenage girls, three of whom are named Heather, and a click at Ohio High School one of whose lives is disrupted by the arrival of a misanthrope intent on murdering the popular students and staging their deaths as suicide. Supposedly, it's supposed to be sort of the antithesis of the John Hughes movies of the time that were quite optimistic and feel good and all that jazz. Um, this one is supposedly is a darker satire. Um, apparently, it's really, really good. And uh, originally, interestingly enough, um, Stanley Kubrick um, was sought to direct the movie, but he passed on it. <laughs> Could have been cool. Was it like a like a difficult decision, or <laughs> I don't know. Uh, what happened was supposedly here the scriptwriter Daniel Waters um, was a big fan of Doctor Strangelove and figured that a black comedy like this would be right up Kubrick's alley. Um, I mean, Eyes Wide Shut came out, like, in, what, 91? Mm -hmm. Or is that way... I'm pretty sure it's um, 91. It... Okay, apparently he says here 99. Okay, so I fucked that up. Uh, I don't know what Kubrick was doing towards the end of his career, because he didn't have that many movies out, like, in the 90s. Um, I'm actually going to check this. But because he did... Okay, so, like, he did a lot in the 70s. You did Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon in 71, 75. Then in the 80s, he had two films, Shining in 80 and Full Metal Jack in 87. And then there's a 12-year gap. Um, and even then, Eyes Wide Shut came out posthumously, and probably some film fans out there might And AI. It. AI, yeah, which is not directed by him, but like it's his love child that Spielberg carried on. Um, so he didn't do a lot of stuff in the latter half of... Or the towards the end of his life, so maybe he just wasn't that interested in the project. I don't know how it is. Yeah, had better things to do. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, you know, when you get to that kind of stature, I mean, if a project doesn't speak to you, you don't need the paychecks anymore. So what's the point? Pretty much. All right, Heather's next week. Heather's gonna be a good one. I think it'll be fun. At the very least, it'll be fun. Do you have anything to say to me or the people? No. Uh, everybody, chillax, have a good time, stay groovy, all the typical hippie bullshit.
If you enjoyed anything you heard today, make sure to stay tuned for weekly episodes available for streaming on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and umfm.com. And don't forget to follow our Instagram page at COP Podcast.